Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then... They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it? What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out of the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. This is God's word. All right. Thanks, Joy. And uh, let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be gathered here today um, on this this day that you have uh, invited us to worship you, to listen to your word uh, to contemplate who you are and you know how you shape who we are. 
We praise you for the good things going on in our world, in our lives, our community, especially uh, for John and Annie's wedding last night. It was so good to see them together and enjoying that special day. It was so good to see so many of the faces here in this church at that time. Pray this evening as we reflect on this uh, kind of critical story in humanity that has uh, been passed down to us, that we would see what you have for us to see within it, that you would shape us, and most of all, point us to Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So... um, yeah, this story we read is, uh, is, we believe, a true story, not only of origins, but of what it means to be human. We believe that this happened, but it also happens again and again. It's in many senses on repeat. It's the story of God who made us to know him and live meaningful lives. It's the story of our appraisal that we are missing out. It's the story of a crafted temptation that keyed in on our desires and the repercussions of our choices. And it's the story of a God who immediately responds because it is a story of redemption. It's a story that we can all relate to. So this evening, we consider what it means to trust God. So this is our new series that we're going into. We're going to look at some of the lives, like kind of the big um, people of the Bible, uh, some of the key stories of the Bible, and look at the idea of trusting God out of each one of them. And as the the children's storybook Bible um, that we used to read to Abby always said, the Bible is not a book of heroes. Um, There's a lot of great people in it, but most of them are pretty messed up. Um, It's a story of a God that carries people through despite their manifold uh, mistakes and issues. So this evening, I want us to look at this idea of trustworthiness, what, what it means to trust someone, of distrust, the, the distrust that is kind of inherent within the human condition, um, of living with trust issues, and the final idea is faith, and I want to distinguish that slightly from trust. So trustworthiness, what, what does it take to consider someone trustworthy, right? Um, that, that becomes kind of a core question here, is it that they keep promises? Um, what does it take to keep a promise, couple things that I thought through as I thought about that is I thought, well, they have to be able, if somebody makes a promise, they have to be able to keep their promise, right? It's not enough to make a promise if you can't actually keep it. And you have to actually intend to keep that promise. Um, It can't be a, you know, a lie. You have to intend to keep the promise. You have to be able to, and you have to have good intentions. So John, our co-pastor here, is now a married man, right? As of last night, some of us were there. And he and Annie stood up in front of everybody and they made promises to each other. And there's a reason the traditional vows vows don't over-promise. They don't get too specific. They don't say, I'll never let you down, right? Or they don't say, I promise I'll always wake up before you and cook you a delicious breakfast. Um, they, They don't get too specific. They promise love and faithfulness. And even that, as Rod so eloquently said last night, um, you will fail at. You will promise to do this and you will not reach the the utter keeping of that vow. You need God to help you with that. Um, All people who make promises like that, I hope, intend to keep them. We know John and Annie do. We know the type of people that they are. But then comes the question of your ability. Do you have the perfect love and faithfulness that you can really offer to someone? And at the end of the day, the question is, are you going to try? Is this something that you're going to faithfully try to do, right? 
we try to hold this person even above ourselves. We try to focus our attention faithfully on that person. In a great marriage, a great relationship, we're trying to love each other faithfully. And the other person is trying too. The book of Genesis is the story of the beginnings of God's people, um, which is what marriage is illustrating. Marriage is illustrating the relationship between God and his people. And these stories of Genesis were passed down orally until Egypt was, um, or until Israel was delivered from Egypt on Mount Sinai, and then they were written in stone. Have you ever wondered where that uh, phrase came from? That's, that's where. Uh, they were written in stone. They were delivered to God's people. And the difference between this story and a love story is that in the story of Genesis, the ability of God is established before these people are created because the God of Genesis created the heavens and the earth. And God's first couple wasn't out of the loop on this. Adam was clued in to it. God walked with him, and then he walked with both of them. God told Adam the story of creation. We believe and Adam knew it well, and he knew it well enough to pass it down to generation after generation after him. And so these first people knew the creation story, and they knew not only that, they experienced God personally, which is beyond our comprehension, the level of knowledge and intimacy with God that they had. We have these periodic experiences. I, I, as I talk to people, there are, there are many people who have a sense that they've had a moment or an experience that goes beyond their, you know, what they can explain, just a little bit of feeling, a, a sense, a, a, just a close, intimate moment. But Adam and Eve would have had that on the regular. But the same is true for us um, as of them. Our creator has the ability to keep his promises, even if we don't sense that deeply. Think about it. If this world and our conscious souls have been made by God, if they were intentionally made, who else could have the ability to provide what we need to live a meaningful life other than the one who designed us and made us? But it is not enough to know that. We have to believe that God's intent toward us is also good. And that's what came up with Adam and Eve. They, they who walked with and knew God intimately, in this story, they seemed to be wondering about such things, and God didn't shield them from the question. Honestly, he seems to call the question. In that, in the garden in which he invited them to be in his presence, he also placed a tree. And that tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were told, they were given a law, as our kids just discussed. They were given a law that said, don't, don't eat it. And if you eat of it, you'll surely die. Have you ever been presented with such, you know, information? Like, imagine that I had a book up here and I held it and I said, I know what's in this book. But you can't read it. You can't handle it. You're not allowed to know. How do you feel about that book? If you're like me, everything inside of you now wants to read this book, right? It's like the conversation that, uh, that kids might have with their parents about, like, intimacy. Their parents are like, we know about that, but we're not going to tell you all about it. And the kid goes, whoa, ah, what, what now? And then you begin to question something. Is it best that I do not know this information or not? 
is it best that I have partial information and someone above me has more information or would it be better if I had that information and could decide what I think of it for myself? Am I content to be dependent on somebody else, on someone above me or trust their appraisal of things or is it more important for me to be independent and discern this knowledge for myself. The core of the question, of course, when it comes to God is, can I trust God or do I trust myself more? And even beyond that, if I can trust God, if I can technically trust God, is there something that I just want to know about? Is God's intent for me good in my appraisal of things or do I need to investigate it myself? You don't need to have grown up in the church to know how the Genesis story goes, of course. The temptation um, grows because this non-human voice inhabiting a serpent, which is a strange idea, right? But, it, but there it is. It's not a human voice. It's this spiritual voice inhabiting a serpent. Um, comes along and instills the distrust, drives it deeper and says, did God really say that? Is that really what God said? You, you know, you won't... The repercussions of this won't be as severe. You won't die. He just doesn't want you to know what he knows, essentially. And this is a very enticing idea. The New Testament book of James describes temptation this way. It says, we're dragged away by our own desires and enticed. Do you see the, the kind of double thing that's going on here? We have a desire, and that's what drags us away, but we're also enticed. There's like this inner and outer voice that agree with each other and say, this thing you should really have. We just want what's best for us, right? And doubting the trustworthiness of God seems to follow so easily because it allows us to take charge. And we take charge in so many ways. There's so many forbidden fruits. There's so many callings that feel too risky Think for a moment about the areas in your life in which you tend to distrust that God will deliver on his promise. The thing that, that you say, if I do that, if I tell the truth in this situation, if I really offer myself, that is too risky, it'll hurt. Or the thing where you say to yourself, um, if I don't know that, I can't be safe. And just, just think about that for a second. What are you afraid God's intent toward you might be? That's our distrust is in those questions. And we all can relate. Um, Adam and Eve do eat the fruit and they enter this new reality. It's one in which God is no longer at the center of their lives. They are at the center. Um, it becomes each one for themselves. It immediately happens. Community is broken. Um, they're hiding from God. They're covering their bodies from being seen by one another. In our day, we will uncover our bodies before we will bear our souls, right? We will. That's, that is how we will. We would uncover our bodies before we would bear our souls. Our clothing, the clothing we wear is symbolic of our curated presentation of ourselves to others. We must be in control of it. And not only do they cover themselves, they turn against one another. Blame shifting comes into play, right? The man says it's the woman. The woman says it's the serpent. And people have never stopped. The blame truly goes 
both ways. It's rare to confront an issue with someone and not experience at least a little bit of blame shifting, where, the, where you say, this hurt, well, what about you, right? And it's so easy to do. It's the most natural response for me. I don't need to convince us of this, I assume. You don't need a religious text to show that people are divided, and we often do not ask, how does God factor in? Um, what if we trusted God again? How would that impact our interpersonal issues? I, I don't need to convince you that we have these issues, but I do think we need to ask if we put the cart before the horse. And so here's the cart and the horse, right? We are constantly asking, we're always asking and dealing with <laughs> our trust issues with others. We're always, we're hyper aware of this. This is the news. This is relationship counseling, right? Our trust issues with others. And we always, like rarely, I mean, even in my own life, I, I can tell you how unaddressed our distrust of God is. Imagine if it took up as much of the conversation as our distrust with others. How would that impact our relationship? Imagine if the two were reversed, if we spent the majority of our time addressing what the Bible says is our core problem, our distrust with God, and then saw and waited on God to watch how that impacted our relationships with others. The impact of distrust is manifold, guilt, shame, shame, blame, broken relationship, innocence lost, and so God bans them from the garden of his presence. And this feels brutal and punitive um, until you consider what it would mean to stay. The garden was not meant to be where they lived all the time. Adam's curse was to work the earth or was to, uh, sorry, Adam's calling was to work the earth from which he was made. The garden was where they experienced God's presence and where they partook of the tree of life. The tree of life symbolized and actually facilitated their eternal life. And our ancient ancestors, as we can understand, would not have wanted to die. So if the tree of life were available to them and they would have eaten of it and partaken of the eternal state, what would that mean? What would it mean to eternally live out of guilt and shame? What would it mean to be eternally hiding from God? What would it mean to be eternally blame-shifting and deflecting? Answer, it would be hell. Eternal knowledge of God's presence without access. Eternal torturous existence being self-absorbed yet entirely unfulfilled. So God blocks the way. It's a mercy. So now we live outside of the garden with trust issues. That's our next idea, trust issues. So the impact of what we often call the fall was immediate. They're hiding from the presence of a good God. They're feeling guilt, which is justified, covering over nakedness, physical and emotional, hiding our distinctness from one another, which is shame. But in other ways, it rolls out more slowly. It's not as immediate. The man and the woman hear the repercussions of their distrust, Um, To Adam, it's his calling, his vocation, his work, in another sense, um, that that is impacted. Um, It's now infected by worm and weeds, thistle and thorns. It becomes laborious. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. This is supposed to be his blessing, where he finds his 
ability to live out of the image of God. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. And to the woman who's soon named Eve um, afterward, which means the mother of the living, so her generative nature that reflects the image of God is now impacted by the increase of pain and potential death. Um, Carol Myers, uh, who's a, a theologian, says, like, really does some good work on this and shows this pain, even in the Hebrew word, is not just physical pain, but it's the emotional pain. And it's not just the emotional pain of bearing a child that will die someday, but a child who you will not be in perfect relationship with. Parenthood is complicated. And her relationship to the man is marked by conflict instead of being complementary. The curse says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And these are curses. It, it's, and God's justice is active in these curses, but they're also effects of the cause of distrust. These are the impact of distrust on the situation. Life is lived outside of a trusting relationship with God, our creator, and the blessings that come with that. Relationship is impacted all around because of distrust in God. Our relationships to one another easily slide into conflict. Our parenting becomes painful, and our relationships um, cause our callings in life to be riddled with blood, sweat, and tears. But that's nothing compared to the curse that comes upon the tempter. This eternal antagonist is not banned from God's presence, by the way. Um, actually, the oldest book in the Bible is Job, which is taking place chronologically after creation, and that's exactly where the tempter shows up, is in God's presence, interestingly. But this curse on this tempter, in our minds, feels very temporal and material. The serpent will slither forever and will be at odds with the woman's offspring. And though, as in the case of Job, he may injure the woman's offspring, it will, he will ultimately find his demise underneath the bruised heel of the Son of Man. And the tempter will be dealt a death blow by the son of a woman. And Adam and Eve heard this fate of their tempter, that not only would he be kind of cursed, but he would actually die under the bruised heel of the son of a woman, and they believed it. They believed it. They believed that a son would redeem them despite his suffering. And how do we know that? That's why I had Joy read so much. She read all the way to 4.2, and it was... It was great because Adam and Eve, they heard this curse of the serpent, and when they bear their first son, um, the text captures this expression of praise. They say, we've been given a son, we've been given a man with the help of the Lord, and we believe that they believed that this one would redeem them. That's why they, they praised and celebrated that this son of theirs would save them, would, would bring God's judgment on their tempter. Now, spoiler alert. They were wrong. Um, interestingly, of the two sons that are mentioned in 4.2, they say nothing about Abel. They don't celebrate him at all. And he's the more righteous of the two. He's the one that suffers. 
Um, they celebrated the wrong son, but they also, we can see looking back, um, celebrated you know, thousands and thousands of years early. But Cain grew up, and instead of crushing the serpent's head, he struck the head of his brother Abel, who didn't deserve it. The more faithful of the two is struck down by the, by the one that they put all their hopes into. He becomes the first killer. He perpetuates the suffering. I've got an image of William Blake's um, body of Abel found by Adam and Eve. This is a brutal scene that he painted, um, which is here's Eve, you know, lamenting and weeping over her son, Abel, and Adam's shock, and Cain is going to run away from them and from the presence of God, and he places the grave in between the two of them as like this separator, this thing that, you know, becomes the, the divide between humans and one another is their, their violence uh, toward one another. My only problem with that is there's a shovel. We, we know those were not invented yet. Um, but something we rarely consider is this. What would it be like to be Adam and Eve, to hear a curse pronounced on your tempter, and then to hear a, a redemption story, a redemption plan that your tempter is going to be crushed, and to act in faith, to believe that God is coming through on his promise, and then to have your hopes dashed by your own son, who you put your hopes in, and also really by God. I mean, was it God's fault? I and mean, Cain did the killing, but God created the conditions and God didn't stop it. And what about God's promise of redemption? Did God mean it? Did he ever intend to save them? Was God able to achieve it? Or was the, the free will of Cain just too much for God? And Adam and Eve would live with aching questions like these, right? They must have. They'd seen something brutal. But the very fact that we have a book of Genesis means they kept telling God's story to generation after generation, including the promise of redemption. Despite the fact that they were living with these trust issues, that they'd believed in it once and had fallen apart, and it hadn't worked out. They had another son. His name was Seth. And they sang a song again. And, and Eve said she named him with the idea that he was a new seed to replace the one that had been ripped up and her son Abel, which commentators believe is her hoping that God is doing something good again, like what happened in Eden where the seeds grew. And they kept hoping. So Adam and Eve are impacted by the curse of their own choosing, living outside of God's regular presence, hearing God's promises, trying to believe, and then having their hopes dashed, and then trying to trust again, even though they don't see the whole picture. Now here's where I pause and ask, if any of that feels at all familiar to you. Does anyone here feel an aching fear that God isn't trustworthy or good? Or maybe that God is technically good, but will not be good to you? Do you ever hear the aching or the, the sort of um, prodding words of the tempter that says, he's withholding for you from you. He's not really for you. In fact, why are you following his ways anyway? Wouldn't you like to taste the autonomy? 
Does anyone feel the intense eyes of God after you've made mistakes, searching you out, even calling your name, but feel guilt, the guilt of your sins, and, and as if you need to hunker down and hide? Does anyone struggle with other people seeing your shame? Do you fear being known? Do you feel the need to curate a cover-up in order to send people off of your trail? Does anyone here relate to Adam and Eve in that you heard that God would save you through his suffering son and you trusted that in some very specific ways and so far it has not worked out? Maybe even you felt hurt more since you became a Christian than you did before because you got your hopes up. This is a story I hear often um, that people have come into church and say, I finally found a family and then the family's broken, right? Right? Or that people enter into a relationship. I finally met a Christian man. And then it turns out he's broken. Or you came in with some problems and you feel a sense of relief. And then five years later you realize I'm still broken. (laughs) Um, I've got a weird meme for you here. But sometimes it can kind of feel like this. That's Cain and Abel. Like, there's what I thought God was doing in my life, and uh, Cain is just destroying it. Um, And that's God's plan. Feels like it's taking our life's desires and just pummeling them. I hear this story a lot. Friends, I'm supposed to be a spiritual leader, and I can unequivocally assure you that I relate to all of those scenarios, and not just in my past, um, but recently. We live with trust issues. It's just true. We don't see the big picture. But the righteous do not live by the power of their trust. They live by faith, the Bible says. What do I mean by faith? Isn't that trust? Well, it involves trust, but it's more. We can get rid of that. That's depressing. Um, Some people use the word faith these days to refer to your religious system. You know, what faith are you in? But in in the Bible, faith is the infusion of new life and sustaining hope. Recall that the naming of Seth, right? Um, It's like this idea that, that just steadfastly holds to God will not abandon the dream of the garden, even though I've seen otherwise. It's in the Bible a gift that God gives to us that allows us to sustain Um, and walk through our trust issues, and even receive what Adam and Eve hoped for, and truly even more, the highest good that God intended for us. The book of Hebrews draws all the way back to this story in Genesis and shows us that God sustained people even then by faith. It says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made of things that are visible. And Adam and Eve passed that story down to us. And here comes the moment of their greatest trust issues. By faith, it says, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. In other words, because of faith, we receive 
access to the tree of life after suffering due to our failure of trust. How can this be? How can Abel's faith, though he died, speak to us? Hebrews 11 goes on and lists a lot of other people who struggled like we do with trust issues with God. If you read their stories, you'll see it over and over again. You'll see them hoping for something and being wrong. You'll see them making mistakes and having shame and guilt. None of them were perfect people, but here's what it goes on to say. All of these people, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Notice, they all hoped in something and they never got to see the end result of it. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set, set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Abel's faith speaks beyond his death because it anticipates Jesus. Jesus was not the one we were looking for. Abel was not the chosen son. Jesus did not overcome by physically beating down the serpent. He overcame by being killed by us. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. What does that mean? Genesis 3.15 did point forward to his son. Um, there's a reason it would only be the woman's offspring because God's plan of redemption was stretched far further over time than Adam and Eve ever could have comprehended. They thought was, God was going to give it to them now and they thought they knew how, but they were wrong. And that's exactly where faith takes over, the assurance of things hoped for, which is why they were able to get up and live another day. They tried trusting God and they got it wrong, but something within them that we call faith carried them to keep them looking for something that was coming in the future. They and generation after generation of people actually died without seeing the promise fully realized. Many more sons were born. Most were not savior figures at all. A few like Seth and Joseph seemed like contenders, but even they fell short. But the thread of faith has been woven through the generations. People continue to hope that God would come through, though we're not always sure how. And we've often anticipated how God would save us in ways that proved wrong. So what good is faith if we get it wrong so often, right? Why keep trusting when we misappraise the plan so often? Simply put, it's the object of our faith that saves us, not the quality. By faith, we learn to trust the God who made us, not our comprehension of his plan. It's the quality, it's not the quality of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith, Jesus, who Adam and Eve looked forward to even though they didn't know who he was and who we look back upon, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does it mean that he endured the cross? This means that the tempter bruised his head quite literally, but how did, he, how did he bruise it? The tempter bruised his head through people, taking their ideas of God, God's redemption into their own hands due to the alluring power of evil. We people beat and bruised his head. 
We people took the one God ordained to be our savior and we pressed a crown of thorns into his flesh and we mocked the very one that God had chosen to bear the curse. Before the cross, Jesus suffered agonizing in prayer for us in the garden until blood seeped from his pores. Adam and Eve were cursed with thorns and thistles and pain and childbearing. Jesus suffered on this earth in the garden of temptation and we punctured him with thorns. He endured pain, inner spiritual pain and outer pain far more than childbearing to make us children of God, to bring us back together in mutual trust and relationship to him. He took our curse upon his body. What kind of God is this who not only creates us but suffers what we deserve for our distrust of him? Is he able to be trusted? He created all things. Does he have good intentions for us? He is willing not only to have good intentions, but to bear our curse. We are Cain in the picture, and he took the place of Abel, except he also was victorious over death. Abel's faith speaks of him, the only righteous sufferer who didn't just give a sacrifice like Abel, but he became it in our place. He's the son of the Virgin Mary who deals the death blow to the serpent when he took on the guilt the tempter has lured us into and took the curse at our bloody hands. Which is why Christians in all times and places center their faith around Jesus, the righteous one, who entrusted himself to his father and bore a curse to reconcile those of us who have trust issues to God so we can get up and walk another day and hope. The question tonight isn't, are you always sure of God's plan or do you understand it? The question is, do you sense the gift of faith? By God's grace, do you sense a hope and a desire to know God? If you do, will you see that it's coming from God and cling to his promise, though you may not be able to make sense of it? That's what the people of faith have always done. If so, you're welcome to come and receive his death in your place and hope in his resurrection, the invitation back to life and a place in God's eternal presence by faith. We're gonna continue um, in weeks to come to look at trust in the lives of many other patriarchs and you know enough, if you've uh, gone to mission to know, we're always gonna say it comes back to Jesus. That's where we are gonna land every single one of these talks because it is what we're convinced of. We still don't know exactly how the next step works, right? We talked in 1 Thessalonians about Jesus's return. When Jesus instituted this Lord's Supper, he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat of it, remember me. This is my blood shed for you. Every time you drink of it, remember me and proclaim my death until I return. Friends, just as they didn't know how their salvation would come in the garden and as the people in the, even during the lifetime of Jesus didn't know how he was going to be their redeemer, we do not know how he will return. But we wake up every day and we live by faith because he's been faithful in the past. So for now, I will pray for us. There will be two minutes of silence for you to even just ask for more faith, to just seek this God who declares himself trustworthy and has proven it in suffering in our place.
Um, we were going to take the Lord's Supper together, and then after that, we uh, always there's always giving in the back. That is how you help us do what we do. Um, then we are going to eat together, and uh, tonight we're even going to throw the Super Bowl on, or you can play board games in the side room, which is usually what 80% of you do. So um, Brian's cooking for us, and for that, we're uh, Brian and his dad, and we're really grateful. So um, let's pray, partake in Christ, and then... Um, rest in his grace and enjoy time together. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this chance to be with these friends, with this uh, group of people who really our only bond is because of you, Jesus. Our lives are all so different. We all have different manifestations of our trust issues. We deal with very different versions of guilt and shame, but we, uh, we come together because we have the same Savior, and thank you for that. And I pray that you would bond us together in love um, but that we would love you first with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then because of that love you have for us, that we discover in you that we would love one another as we love ourselves. So do this work in us and lead us now as we pray.